Now hear God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. This is the Word of God. The letter to the Ephesians is something we're going to spend probably uh, the better part of this year and perhaps some of next year looking at. It's a most important letter. It was the favorite of many theologians and scholars, John Calvin not the least. The book of Ephesians came to the churches in Asia. The addition to the church at Ephesus was added later. This church was a probably a circular letter that was written to many churches in Asia. And as it eventually made its way into these churches and scribes continued to uh, uh, rewrite it, they added to this church, to that church. And the one we have left is this one, to the Ephesian church. It's interesting that Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Those of you who have read your Bibles and know that uh, the Ephesian church was an excellent church. It was one of those churches that was above, above reproach. And yet, the Apostle Paul knew that they would suffer soon. It wouldn't be very long, not many years, before a dragon with uh, seven heads and ten horns would rise out of the sea and would begin to devour the churches. Those of you that have read the book of Revelation, Nicolas Cage notwithstanding, um, which is, please, uh, the, the dragon went after the church, went after the Lord Jesus Christ and His bride and His church. And those of you that have read the book of Revelation know that the Ephesian church suffered greatly and 
actually fell in some respects, losing sight of her first love. And so the book of Ephesians could not be more important than it is today. For those of us, we're living in a world that's crazy. It seems like it's out of control. But Paul is writing a letter to them, knowing what they would suffer, and a letter to us, knowing what we would suffer, and knowing and people in other parts of the world what they're suffering. We cannot imagine what Christians in other parts of the world are suffering. And so this book has an incredible message for them in that day, but also for us. In the past weeks, I told you that Paul is giving us a grammar for the gospel in the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you don't get that grammar, you won't understand uh, the gospel. The grammar of the gospel is not only in the book of Ephesians, it's elsewhere as well. Here's uh, basically what he does. There are six chapters in Ephesians. Now, Paul didn't put in the chapters and verses, but there are six chapters and, uh, and the verses that go along with them. The book of Ephesians is neatly divided into two sections. The first part of the book of Ephesians, Paul uses nothing but indicative verbs. There are no imperatives. And indicative verbs are verbs that say they're verbs of who you are and what God has done in you. No commands but who you are, what He has done in His people. And then in the second half of the book, neatly divided, the last three chapters, Paul begins to use imperatives. In other words, almost everything he says is a command. Do this. Love one another. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Children, Obey your parents, slaves. Obey your masters. So over and over, he's giving us this grammar. And what the grammar of the gospel is, listen, you can, after this, you don't have to listen to anything else. I hope you will. But after the, here's, here it is. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines what you do. If you get those backwards, folks, you are no longer talking about Christianity. You're talking about something else. If what you do defines who you are, you're simply a Pharisee. You're simply a religious person. And you could be anything. And so if you don't get this, your Christianity will become odious. It will become a burden. It will become, it will become hateful to you. You will struggle and grind away in your Christian life if you don't realize and accept the fact that who you are must precede what you do. And if you don't, it'll, it'll, it'll be a wreck, a, a train wreck. Believe me, I know because I have been there and so have many of you. You know what it's like. We work, we work, we work to earn God's acceptance. And we love, as Protestants, we love to sit back and throw stones at our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters and throw Rome, uh, stones at our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters and say, oh, they believe in salvation by merit. But you talk to most Protestants and you... You keep digging deep enough and you will eventually get them to say it's Jesus plus something. 
And it's not until you come to the bottom of yourself and you empty yourself and you understand what we're going to talk about this morning, the sovereignty of God. That becomes your true purpose. The sovereignty of God gives us true hope. And the sovereignty of God, folks, is your only hope, my only hope, of true glory. True glory. So we're going to look at that this morning. True purpose, true hope, and true glory. Part of the grammar of the Gospel is also Paul uses tenses, past, present, and future. A few weeks ago, we talked about what he did in the past. In the past, he predestined and he chose. Now, I know that that gives people a lot of shivers and some folks actually break out in hives whenever you mention election and predestination. Uh, and I know there are a lot of questions. If the doctrine of predestination and election doesn't bother you, frankly, I'm worried about you. It should bother you. At the same time, it should give you great hope. Because if God does not elect, and if He does not predestine, if He does not do something in eternity past with respect to you and I, I would like to ask you a simple question. How do you account for your being here this morning? How? Because at the bottom, it's going to end up being you doing something to save yourself. But when you realize that God looked down upon this broken and pitiful and sewer of a planet with people all shaking their hands and fists at Him like I did for so many years, shaking my hands and fists at Him, and Him coming into that dark, evil place and out of His own sheer grace and love saving somebody, you'll never really truly understand the Gospel Look at verse uh, uh, 10 and 11. He talks about it according to His purpose, according to the purpose of Him, according to the counsel of His will. You see, we don't really believe that God is sovereign. Sovereignty, uh, in our class the other night on Monday night, I explained what sovereignty is out of the dictionary, for goodness sakes. Webster's Dictionary. The word sovereign means this, and folks, Christians tip their hat to God's sovereignty. We don't really believe it. This is what sovereign means. It means to have supreme, indisputable authority and power. So I ask the class, are there things that God cannot do? And of course, you all know from a few weeks ago, what's the answer to that? Are there things God cannot do? Yes, of course there's things. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot love you more than He loves you. He cannot love you less than He loves you. And He cannot give more than He has given. There's a lot. He cannot make a rock too big for Him to lift. The old philosophical question. There's lots of things He can't not do. And one of the things that he can't do is not be sovereign. Is everybody... Yes? He cannot not be sovereign. So someone asks the question, well, can't he limit his sovereignty? No. 
If he limits his sovereignty, he's no longer God. He is something we have imagined and created in our own mind. He is absolutely sovereign. And so R.C. Sproul says this. Those of you that like R.C., and I love R.C. He was one of my professors at seminary. And R.C. says this, to deny. Now, he can get away with it, so don't get mad at me. I'm not R.C. Sproul. But here goes. To deny God's sovereignty is technically to be an atheist. And if you think about that, I know it's going to take some time, but think about it. To deny a sovereign God is to technically be an atheist because now you're no longer talking about God. You're talking about something else, something other than God. Listen, uh, listen to this, what Dr. Ferguson says in his little commentary. And I, You know, normally I don't read you all, uh, but I can't pass this up. I sent this to Scott part of this to Scott Warman the other day and um, how, how, did, how did it do? Did it rock your world? It rocked his world. <laughs> and you look at Scott, you've got to do a lot to rock his world, let me tell you. <laughs> Alright, listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson. This will rock your world, so pay attention, wake up. Ephesians 1.11, and that's, uh, look at verse, uh, verse 11 real quickly, uh, just so that we can reference it. Uh, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, listen, works all things according to the counsel of His will. Okay, now listen, here goes. Ephesians 1.11 may be the strongest and most comprehensive statement about God's absolute sovereignty in the whole Bible. He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This is not a user-friendly universe for all and sundry. But Paul is stressing, listen carefully folks, whatever the native tendencies of people that includes ISIS that includes our president that includes our government that includes whatever conspiracy theory you happen to believe is in place today and people putting chemicals in the, the jet fuel uh, so that we'll all become passive those of you that believe in uh, chemtrails and uh, listen to me listen so whatever the native tendency of people, things, and things, God works with and through all that happens. The events of history and, listen, the events of our individual lives are never outside His will and purpose. There are no exceptions to swallow. Strong medicine for us to swallow. We hate this, folks. When I read this, I didn't particularly like underline it. I couldn't stop myself. It's so amazing. But I didn't particularly like it. This is strong medicine for us to swallow. Some Christians find the first taste of it is bitter. For swallowing it, 
means swallowing the pride that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But once pride is dissolved by the absolute lordship and sovereignty of the one who can be trusted absolutely, the effects are wonderfully therapeutic. We begin to recover. Listen, we begin to recover from the sin, sickness, that gripped Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and at last we allow God to be God. And we discover that His sovereign purpose, even in the experiences that cause us pain, are for our good. In some ways, what Paul says is yet more remarkable and liberating discovery. God does all this for His glory. But His glory is not the enemy. Listen, His glory is not the enemy of our good. In fact, He pursues His own glory in such... Only a sovereign God could do this, by the way, folks. He pursues His own glory in such a way that He simultaneously brings His people most blessing. His pleasure... And our blessings, our marriage partners, that is the commitment from which He will never withdraw. Do you see what this means to us, folks? Do you realize that if you'll just embrace the reality, whatever you want to do with the chosen and election, I understand it's difficult, but at least admit that God is sovereign that He is in control of all things and not one molecule is loose in the universe going its own way, that He is actually controlling the events of history and our individual lives to bring us the most glory and the most good, Him the most glory and the most good for us. Do you see that? Do you see how liberating that is? How freeing that can be? Especially when you're suffering heartache and trouble and you think, what have I done wrong? And we start wringing our hands. What, what's wrong with my faith? How come I don't believe? How come this and that? We start worrying and fretting and wringing our hands over everything instead of focusing and turning our eyes to the One who is sovereign and believing that He's hearing our prayers that He's listening to our cries for mercy. Do you see the glory in it, folks? We can only find our true purpose. One of the reasons I think we struggle so much as people, Christians or not, with what is the purpose of life? What is, mean, what is the meaning of this? I got cancer three and a half years ago. Stage three cancer. And the first thing that came to my mind was what? Why? I mean, I'm doing so great. I'm obeying you. I never slip. I, I rarely sin. My faith is impeccable. I'm a minister. I mean, I even have letters, you know. Of course, we start to doubt, but what do you do? If you, if you stay there, you just beat yourself down into the ground and you end up thinking it's all about you and it's not about you. I don't know why I got cancer. I, I, I really don't know. Maybe I had too many dental x-rays. <laughs> My dad's a dentist, so I was in his office. <laughs> How do I know? And what difference does it make, really? What really matters is what do you do with that? And so the next thing that came in my mind, thank God, was, no, oh, I'm okay. 
here's what I thought. I thought like the apostle. Whether I live, I live unto Christ. Whether I die, I die to Christ. So whether I live or whether I die, I belong to Christ. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like lots of Jesus and very little Chuck. Yes? Don't you love that? That's freeing. I don't want it to be about me. I'm not that great. I want you to think I'm great, but I'm really not that great. It creates, it creates tremendous humility, incredible dignity when you see that God loved you and gave His Son for you. It creates security. You don't start to wring your hand. Oh, I'm saved. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? He loves me. He loves me not. No, He loves you. And when you're faithless, and when you fail, He is never faithless, and He never fails. And so, tear off those bumper stickers that say when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot, and hang on. That's bumper sticker theology. At Christ the King, we don't like that. Our bumper sticker says this, God has bound you with cords of love. What does that sound like? cords of love that means he's got you on your worst day he got you and he never will let us go true purpose your true meaning the satisfaction that we're all longing for you're going to find anchored only in a sovereign God a God who is in absolute control of everything in our lives what we do with them that's another question that brings us to the second point living in true hope. This is something I've told you, I don't know, for 11 and a half years, I've repeated it, folks, the living in the already and not yet. Look at, uh, uh, I think it's verse 10, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Very quickly, this verb in verse 10, the verb unite, is very rare. It's rare in the Bible, and it's rare in Greek literature in general. It's only used two times in the New Testament and basically what it means, the idea it means, uh, Paul's trying to get across, is that he is going to, in the future, in some point in the future, he is going to gather all things, not some things, all things. He's going to gather them together and put them under Christ's Lordship. This is a day, someday in the future, we don't know when it's coming, but whenever it comes, every eye will see Him. The heavens will roll back like a scroll. There's not going to be some secret rapture and, you know, airplanes going to fall from the sky and stuff like that. It's not going to happen like that. It's going to come cataclysmically, all at once. And He's going to appear in glory. And the people that died are going to see Him. And the people that are alive are going to see Him. And He is going to descend from heaven with His army and bring His great city to the earth. And we're going to be glorified, those of us that have trusted Him, whether we've died or whether we're living. And we're going to enter the gates of that city and see the radiance of our great King. That is the day that all things will come under His Lordship under his headship you see the bibles folks go with me 30,000 feet into the atmosphere up into the air and look down at the story of your bible big book like this but here's the basic story of the bible here it is creation beautiful good very good 
And then, chaos. Creation. Good. Very good. Then, chaos. Then, Revelation 21 and 22, new creation. Creation, chaos, new creation. That's your Bible story. There are great kings. You have great kings. David and Solomon. Glory. The, the kingdom of God comes to earth in, in, in Jerusalem. David and Solomon. The streets are paved with gold. They threw silver. It was nothing. It, a great kingdom. Then death comes. And you have Manasseh. One of the last kings. A despicable king. A son of David who did things that we can't even describe in this room today because there are children here. They were so horrific. And then Jesus comes. Who is He? The true king. So you have David and Solomon, great kings, brought the kingdom of God. Then there's chaos and death. And then you have the true king. What about Adam? God created Adam, breathed life into Adam. Then the next story in the Bible is Cain and Abel killing what Cain killing Abel and death reigning from that day until Jesus. And Jesus comes, and those of you studying the Gospel of John know what he was. He was the life and light of the world. And what happened to him? He died. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Jesus conquers death. And what about you? Your story. If you're a Christian, you were born and at some point you repented of your sin and believed in Jesus and you died. You died. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I died. Nevertheless, I live. Not me, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We bo we're born alive, but at some point we had to die and become a Christian. And now we live, our life is in Him. Dr. John Stott said, Paul is referring to cosmic renewal, regeneration of the universe, the liberation of the groaning creation. All things will be united in Him. That's our hope, folks. We have a purpose in life grounded in Him. We have a hope that is grounded in the future in Him. I keep saying week after week, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I think it's because we are going to suffer persecution in the United States of America. Doesn't matter who gets elected, folks. I'm sorry to bear bad news. There's going to be trouble in this world. And it may reach us. And I have to tell you, I have to. Maybe things are okay. You know, we can get in the car after church and go get a Starbucks. Everything's okay right now. But it's my job to tell you to anchor your hope in Jesus Christ no matter who's in political office, no matter what the economy does, no matter what your body does, how crazy, no matter how bad your marriage may get or which kids go off the rails. Marty V and I can tell you, our, our, we had trouble with our kids. What do you do then? You anchor your hope in a sovereign God and you anchor your hope 
in Jesus Christ the King, the light and life of the world. That's how you'll make struggles. We live, you see, we live now as Christians. We are to live now already anticipating that future kingdom so that, listen carefully folks, so when the world catches up with us, everything will be under Christ's headship. Do you see that? The world someday will catch up with us. But we're to start now. Living in hope. This isn't a Pollyanna, a naivete, you know, oh, everything's so sweet, look at all the flowers and all that stuff. No, that's not it. It's, it's stark realism. But realism looking through lenses of hope. It's okay to lament. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to, to suffer. Read the Psalms. It's okay to feel these things. What is not okay, it is not okay, it is not okay to ever despair. Amen? Yes? No despairing. There is always hope. There is a tidal wave coming. It's already on its way. And He promises that He will unite all things in heaven and in earth. Only with that kind of hope, folk, if only, only then will you have an unassailable joy, even in your grief and your sorrow, the trials that come our way, the busted up lives, the messy lives. I don't know. My, my life is, seems to be getting more messy. And I have to put more faith and more hope in my Savior every day, the older I get. And all of you have to do the same thing. But only that kind of hope will create an unassailable joy, an optimism, a hope that will carry you through the trials and troubles of this life as we anticipate the glory of God. And that's the third thing that I want to bring up this morning. Living in true glory. So you've seen living in true purpose, living with true hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's a certainty. It's putting your faith in a future certainty. And finally... Living with true glory. Look at verse 12 and following. I won't read it all, uh, but particularly the last part of the, the last verse. Until we acquire possession of this great inheritance that we have been promised. Again, Dr. Sproul says this The goal of creation is neither chaos nor disharmony, but unity. Now listen. The point of unity will be His anointed King. The universe is destined for glory and Christians are predestined to participate, to participate and witness that glory. That is our future. A future glory. Not our glory. His glory. We are to participate in it and witness it. I read a story yesterday about a Christian kindergarten teacher, lady that taught Christian school, kindergarten. And she tells a story of this little girl who was caught up in the middle of a horrific divorce uh, between her parents very vicious and this little girl little kindergarten girls caught in the middle between 
two parents, you can imagine. And the little girl would come to school and climb into the lap of her Christian teacher and say this. Tell me again. Tell me again that Jesus loves me. I keep forgetting. Tell me again he loves me. I keep forgetting. Folks, it's so easy during the week to just get beat up and stained and and covered with the filth of our lives. Not the world, us. And to be burdened down and to forget that Jesus loves us. You see, we lost something in the garden. We lost our glory, our capacity to glorify God. We lost it in the garden. And it took a man coming back and going into another garden and there sweating blood for you and me, being forsaken for you and me, and ultimately going to the cross for you and me so that we could once again be clothed with that glory that we once had. Some of it now, more of it later. What was lost in the garden, Jesus regoved in the garden. And the cross, the cross becomes for you and for me. The tree of life that's in the garden. It's easy to forget. Jesus loves you. Will you trust Him? Will you give Him your heart today? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for loving us in this way. That you gave your Son, your only Son for us. That we could recover the dignity and the glory that sin has so terribly destroyed. Father, cleanse us this day, we pray through the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us, save us, and have mercy on us. And we pray, Father, please, as we come to this beautiful table where we feast upon the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. We pray you'll do it in his name. Amen.